From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Evan Smiley. I'm Lindsay Smith. I am always interested to know what you guys think about the show. Please feel free to contact the Beyond Footnotes team on Facebook or Twitter with any comments, questions, or suggestions concerning the podcast. For previous episodes and extended content, check out kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes or soundcloud.com. Images of knights, fair ladies, horses, castles, massive cathedrals often come to mind when thinking about medieval Europe. I can almost see the rolling green hills, smell the oven fire, hear the melodies of the distant past when looking at medieval paintings or drawings. I've had the fortune to visit and walk through a few British medieval sites, cathedrals, and castles. Those were powerful experiences for me as a student and lover of history, but there was much more than the material that makes up the past. The social and cultural structures did not just appear, and they certainly could not and often did not sustain themselves without an intricate web of contributors. Religion, family, politics, environment, resources, community, and relationships existed in various manifestations across vast distances in a rather lengthy time period historians refer to as medieval Europe. From the rise and fall of power regimes to outbreaks of disease to vast trade networks to day-to-day -day life and the evolution of ideas, medieval Europe is not as simple as many fairy tales portray it. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interviewed John Ott. He is a medievalist and professor of history at Portland State University. He received his Ph.D. in history from Stanford University in 1999 and began working as an assistant professor of history at PSU soon after. He was awarded multiple grants, fellowships, and honors throughout his career. He teaches and writes about medieval Europe with a particular focus on the ecclesiastical and urban history of northern France and Flanders in the 11th and 12th centuries. He is currently working on a reader of documents about the medieval secular clergy aimed at undergraduate and graduate students that involves translating documents and contributing commentary alongside a colleague. He is also editing a collection of essays on the medieval clergy and warfare, as well as writing a book called The Archbishop's Poets, Scandal and Reform in an 11th Century Church. Welcome, John. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So let's begin with some more information about you. Where are you from originally? How did you get to PSU? And where did your interest in history generally and European medieval history specifically come from? Well, I'm originally from the East Coast. I was born at West Point, New York at the Military Academy and grew up as an army brat. So I moved all over the place uh, with my family when my father was stationed at various bases around uh, the United States and also for a time in Germany. We moved out to the West Coast when I was a teenager, and I went to college at the University of Puget Sound up in Tacoma, and then from there migrated south to Stanford University, where I did my master's degree and doctorate in medieval history, and then found my way here back uh, up the coast to Portland, and I've been here since 1999. So I've stayed on this side of the uh, country for a good 25, 30 years now. Uh, as far as my uh, professional interest in medieval history, that's a pretty long story. Um, but uh, there are probably a number of decisive turning points I could 
I could point to. One of them was uh, living as a grade schooler in Germany and uh, traveling with my family around Europe in the late 70s, early 80s. And my, my parents uh, insisted on making the most out of our time stationed in Würzburg uh, in uh, sort of central South Germany. And so we traveled to Italy and the Netherlands and England and other places besides. And I got my first taste of European culture there. So that was probably formative, although I was pretty young and probably not entirely aware of, of uh, how what I was seeing would affect me later in life. Uh, as a teenager, I was really uh, heavily involved in role-playing games, Dungeons & Dragons, mm -hmm. back uh, in the old days uh, when it was uh, really still uh, a new game and generally practiced uh, in secret by small groups of uh, fans and admirers of the game. But um, I discovered it when I was in fifth grade, and it kind of opened up to me a, a world of neo-medieval fantasy. Uh, and it's sort of a poorly known, poorly guarded secret that many professional medieval historians <laughs> played this game when they were young. Many of them probably still play it. Um, and it, it uh, is the sort of game that unleashes imagination and, and lets players uh, be creative. And uh, again, I didn't really associate that with a, a specific medieval past necessarily. I, I call it neo-medieval because, of course, it's a fantasy game with monsters and those sorts of things that historians don't, don't typically think about. But um, it was enough that when I got to college as a freshman, I was determined to enroll in a course on medieval European history. And so second semester of my freshman year at the University of Puget Sound, I, I took a, a survey course on medieval European history, and pretty much the course was set at that point. <laughs> um, and it was, a, it was a, a kind of a revelation because I, I began to realize how much more there was to the medieval world than, than I realized from playing role-playing games or as a kid traveling around Germany. That makes perfect sense that oh, good. most <laughs> medieval historians play the uh, Dungeons and Dragons or at least at one point may have because yeah. you know you want to excite your imagination and then from there you, you start exploring the actual past the history mm -hmm. or the relevance to you and to others and how exciting that yeah the history can even be more oh, it's usually more complicated. way more awesome than the, uh, the the fantasy yeah that's that's what I discovered uh, in college is that the history itself is uh, in its way much more engaging than the game and I think the the game excites the imagination in the same way that 19th century romanticism does you mentioned the the fair ladies and the knights on horseback mm -hmm. in the castles that kind of staples of um, popular imagination of the Middle Ages. And, and all of those visions and more were really, uh, in many ways, produced by 19th century romantic painters, by novelists, uh, and others who really saw in the medieval past a vision of Europe that they felt was really uh, slipping away from them, was no longer present in their own day. 
Uh, and so this, this uh, romantic medieval revivalism of the 19th century in, in many ways has a, a very strong connection to 20th century neo-medieval fantasy writing like, like uh, Tolkien and even to an extent C.S. Lewis and other more recent writers uh, like uh, Martin and so on in the Games of Thrones. So it, it's, uh, the imagination is an important part of it uh, and, uh, and yet it, for a professional medievalist, it's just the starting point. Uh, the history itself is is where it's at. I agree. <laughs> so you are an expert in European medieval history, specifically from a, a social cultural point of view. Uh, but this is a rather fast time period. We're talking circa 300 to 1450 CE. Sources from this area and, and period are comparatively rare and often in languages other than English. Uh, plus, Europe is a big territory. It encompasses quite a bit to say that uh, to be a medieval historian. So what does it take to be a medievalist, especially in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a, those are great questions. And I would state right off the bat that um, I'm, I'm not a specialist in, in all of European medieval history. <laughs> I'm a specialist in one corner of medieval Europe and um, one relatively restrained period of about 150, 200 years. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm a specialist in, in Northwestern European social and cultural history. So I focus primarily on France, north of the Loire River. I, uh, my research centers on um, what are the modern low countries, uh, but what was known in, in the Middle Ages as Flanders, uh, which was a county, a large county. Uh, and uh, this is the area I know best. It's the, the period in the history I know best. My teaching responsibilities at PSU encompass a lot more than that, and so I, I have a, a knowledge ranging from from poor to pretty good about um, most of the other periods of medieval European history and and most of the regions of Europe. I'm stronger in some areas than others, and so a medievalist wears a kind of broad title uh, in his or her professional work, but in terms of our research specializations, we all focus much more narrowly on particular periods and particular places in what we do. Uh, and <laughs> that's just a, a necessity uh, when grappling with a, a period of history that's so vast in a region that's so large. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I teach widely, but I, I specialize in my research in a fairly narrow area. So what kind of training um, did you have to go through outside of your discipline of history to be a medievalist? How many languages do you need to kind of be familiar with? And I know that has a lot to do with what region you're specializing in, because no historian is a historian of all history, um, <laughs> even though most people would like to assume that if you say you're a historian, then you must know everything right. about everything. Right. Exactly. And it's like, um, no, I don't know when that was signed. But um, <laughs> I'm curious, uh, well, I'm in a history program now in my graduate program. So what kind of studies did you have to do? You're not only, you're learning different languages, you're learning how to work with different materials. So medievalists uh, have to really be comfortable working in languages other than English. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, and in fact, uh, there are no medieval documents until the later Middle Ages, uh, the um, 13th, 14th centuries, when English becomes increasingly common, Middle English becomes increasingly common as a, as a written language. Uh, so 
Uh, you can get by with modern English in reading, say, Chaucer in the 14th century, but that just won't do for, for other areas and for earlier periods. So uh, medievalists um, just by default have to be comfortable working with and in other languages. And um, the lingua franca of medieval Europe was Latin. So this was a spoken language in um, Italy uh, and in parts of the southern Mediterranean world, but more importantly, it was the language of, of learned uh, written culture. And so documents were produced in Latin uh, by uh, uh, literate clerical writers. Uh, consequently, because clergy were trained in Latin, they uh, could read documents produced in one corner of the Europe from their own perch in another corner of, the Euro of Europe. Uh, and uh, there's no getting around knowledge of Latin if you're going to work as a medievalist. Uh, it's, it's simply essential because vernacular languages don't really become prevalent in the documentary record um, in most places until the 12th century. So particularly if you're an early medievalist, uh, Latin is the language you'll be, you'll, your documents will be appearing in. Almost all the documents I work with are in Latin, for example. Um, but beyond that, medievalists need to read scholarship that's produced in the languages of Europe. And so consequently, uh, most professional medievalists are comfortable working in multiple modern European languages. Um, the, the two primary ones are French and German. Um, uh, and scholars specialize in, gosh, languages uh, ranging from, from Spanish and Catalan to modern Easter, Eastern European languages, Italian, and, and many others besides. So personally, I, I have a reading knowledge of, of German and Dutch. Um, I have a, a speaking um, fluency in French and a reading knowledge of French and of, of Latin as well. And then thanks to my knowledge of French and Latin, I can usually fake my way through <laughs> modern uh, articles and, and monographs in Italian and in, in Spanish, um, although I don't pretend I know every word that I'm reading. So, so, you know, so comfort with languages is, is, is really key. And many medievalists, particularly those who work in, in the Eastern Mediterranean, they, they, they have to know Greek as well. Uh, and then one goes further east, and then you're into languages like Old Church Slavonic. If you work in Scandinavia, you're learning Norse or Nordic languages, um, Icelandic. So it, it, it just go, it goes on and on and on. <laughs> so um, for, for, many, for many historians, the, the languages are both exciting, but they can also sometimes be a barrier to accessing documents in their original forms. So that's a big part of, uh, of the toolkit that medievalists have to draw on. But it's not the only toolkit, uh, because the documents that we examine in archives are uh, written in a handwriting that, to the naked eye, to the untrained eye, can be very, very difficult to read. So most of us, uh, as graduate students, receive some training in paleography, which is the study of ancient scripts. And we often receive additional training in codicology, which is the study of, of manuscripts and how they were made and put together uh, by, by medieval uh, uh, clergy and others. Uh, and these, these tools are sometimes supplemented by expertise in um, how to interpret uh, and understand the production of coinage, uh, numismatics, for those who work in material evidence and who work with coins, which can be very valuable sources in their own right. Um, 
knowledge of numismatics is is critical. Uh, so there really is a is a is a fairly wide range of skills that that medievalists need to develop. Now you don't have to have every single one of these, but if your intention is to work in archives uh, and is to work with the documents firsthand as opposed uh, through encountering them through modern printed editions, then you you absolutely have to have some paleography and you have to have some codicology so you know what it is you're looking at and you can read it. Um, so I'm kind of curious about how you decided on your specialization of northern France. Yeah, I, jo I joke with my students that I became a specialist in France because the food is better there than in England, <laughs> um, which isn't really true, but uh, it doesn't hurt, certainly, when you're doing extended research trips to uh, be in France. Um, I started taking French as a, as a language when I was in middle school. And I pursued it throughout high school, and then I ultimately minored in it in college. And um, while I was in college, I was also exposed, uh, thanks to a, a terrific professor of French that I had, to Old French. And this is the, the, the written spoken French of the 11th and 12th centuries, 13th centuries. Uh, and um, that probably helped to inform my decision to study medieval France, but in fact, it's not the reason. Uh, the reason was that when I was in graduate school, uh, my assigned advisor in my first year uh, retired, uh, and he was a specialist in English history and uh, medieval anti-Semitism by the name of Gavin Langmuir, a really eminent scholar. And I had gone to Stanford uh, to study with him, and he had been assigned as my advisor because at the time I thought I was going to study uh, late medieval peasant movements and insurrections in, in 14th century England. And uh, when he retired, uh, there was no more advisor <laughs> for me to study with. And the other member of the Stanford faculty was a specialist in, um, in French history uh, and was a French himself. So uh, I began under his tutelage to work on increasingly French subject matter and French sources. And uh, really, from that point on, became primarily a, a continental scholar of, of northern France rather than a scholar of late medieval England. So, you know, you, I, I couldn't have predicted this shift. It mm -hmm. suited me because I had had the training in French and I could read French. Um, but I had a greater knowledge of later medieval English history initially than I did of, of, of French medieval history. So that was something I picked up along the way. I'm sure that... Um contributes that knowledge contributes to uh your research in france because i mean there was there was a relationship there oh absolutely yeah. absolutely no it's not as though uh medieval england and france were distant neighbors from one another in mm -hmm. fact um one of the dominant languages the dominant elite language in england for many centuries was french because of uh, it was the, the, the language spoken by the Normans who, who conquered England in the 11th century and consequently proliferated among the Norman elites who assumed the positions within the church and within the, the state bureaucracies as well. Uh, and England was really a, 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 a trilingual society for most of the Middle Ages, really down until Chaucer's day in the 14th century, where um, the local uh, English tongue, Anglo-Saxon, was spoken, but also French and Latin as well. 
and uh, the literate classes could move easily among all of these these different languages. So, uh, no, the the uh, the French and the English uh, have um, a, a history that is uh, interwoven quite tightly together. Uh, so. The channel wasn't that that big of a barrier. I just jumped across and uh, <laughs> felt felt pretty much at home. Although I began working on a much earlier period of history than I had initially intended, which was sort of the 11th and 12th centuries as opposed to the 14th. So I had to learn I had to learn all that history yes. uh, in order to get up to speed uh, and be able to to talk about it. What does the international community look like for medievalists? How do you communicate and collaborate on research? Do you use interdisciplinary approach to your scholarship? How often do you travel? What's the international aspect of being in medievalism? As you can probably imagine, it's, it's uh, really multifaceted. Um, there are medievalists working all over the globe. Uh, there is a very active community of uh, medieval historians, for example, in Japan. Uh, uh, there are active medieval historical societies in Japan, in Taiwan, uh, certainly in Australia, New Zealand, and then of course where you'd expect in Europe and North America. So it's a it's a it's a diverse and far flung community of scholars. Um, there are uh, medievalists specializing in um, the Byzantine and, and, and Russian medieval worlds as well. And this, this far-flung group of many, many thousands of scholars all over the world who work on all facets of medieval culture um, have really two big opportunities to come together each year. Uh, there are two annual international congresses. One is held at Leeds, England, at, at the university there. And the other, somewhat unexpectedly, is held in Kalamazoo, Michigan, on the campus of Western Michigan University. And the Kalamazoo International Congress is now over 50 years and running, uh, just in its 52nd or 53rd year of existence. And it, together with the Leeds Congress, usually attract between two and 3,000 medievalists uh, to present hundreds and hundreds of papers every year. These are four-day, five-day events and are terrific opportunities to network with colleagues. Um, many Europeans and uh, folks from other parts of the globe come to Kalamazoo, uh, and many North Americans uh, travel to the Leeds Congress as well as Europeans. So those are, those are general points of contact for medievalists. Um, but the community is so large and so vast that necessarily it's, it's divided up uh, into affinity groups. So uh, depending on one's specialization, one can find... Uh, like-minded scholars uh, all over the place and find academic societies to support one's own interests. So uh, there is a society that specializes in the study of medieval secular clergy uh, to which I belong and which I um, helped to get up on off the ground about 12 years ago. Uh, and it attracts scholars who have an interest in the secular clergy like I do to um, to work together, to collaborate, to plan conference panels, and to talk about our research. And you can pick virtually any topic imaginable connected with the Middle Ages, and there is an academic society that, um, that will cater to its interests. Um, so you really don't have to look terribly far within the academic community to find uh, international scholars. And uh, we have these opportunities to come together at these big congregus congresses, and then there are, of course, many regional conferences uh, held around the globe as well. 
So it's um, it's a very large community. It's I would ca uh, call it uh, without hesitation a very friendly community. Uh, it is a community that by necessity is is interdisciplinary. Um, we welcome in in the academic societies to which I belong, scholars that have specializations in art history, in literature, in uh, law, and in other fields as well. So um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great and vibrant and very friendly place to, to work. So you've mentioned that you're interested in the secular clergy. In fact, like you're a recent president of Episcopus? Episcopus. Episcopus. That's the Latin word for bishop, yeah. So See, this is kind of a nerdy academic society that yeah. caters to people that like secular clergy. Mm -hmm. Right, yeah. right. So you were a recent president of Episcopus, mm -hmm. a society for the study of bishops and secular clergy in the Middle Ages. I'm curious, what is a secular cleric? And what led you to take on the, the project, the translating the documents, and what do you hope to achieve with that reader? And do you have similar projects in mind for the future? I thought, I thought you were going to ask what, what prompted me to, to establish a society for the study of uh, secular clergy in the Middle Ages. Well, let's <laughs> that do that. Yeah. Yeah. What, what prompted you? Yeah, what to... possible need could I have been filling there? Um, well, funnily enough, uh, this the the idea to to create this society came out of a need that that um, both I and and a colleague recognized uh, to uh, have a place where scholars who work on the secular clergy uh, to come together and to talk about their scholarship. So, a secular cleric um, is a member of the clergy whose life was lived out in the world. Um, in other words, not bound. Uh, by a monastic rule that kept him enclosed uh, within a monastery, say, uh, like a monk or a member of the regular clergy. Uh, there, were, there were various uh, groups uh, that belonged to the regular clergy. So regular clergy follow a regula or a rule, Latin word for rule. And one thinks, you know, sort of commonly of, of monks in this regard. Secular clergy are, um, consist of the, the clergy who live uh, in and serve parishes. Uh, they include members of the uh, cathedral community, uh, that is to say the clergy that serve the, the cathedral, which is the bishop's seat in a diocese. Uh, and they also sometimes live a communal or quasi-communal existences with other secular clergy as uh, members of what are known as sort of collegial houses or collegiate houses. So um, secular clerks uh, lived a slightly more relaxed life than their regular counterparts, and um, consequently uh, were fully engaged in the world. Uh, many of them married and had children. Uh, they could own property. They could pass their property on to their heirs, uh, and in, in many ways uh, lived very worldly lives. Uh, the monastic clergy, though, within the, the broad span of, of um, medieval historical studies has tended to attract more attention. Uh, and one of the reasons for that is because uh, the, the monks were often seen as the vanguard of a sort of pure, more authentic um, religious life. Uh, they were held to be the preservers of written culture in the fall of the Roman Empire. Um, they were the sources of reform within the church. You know, they were the serious ones. They are the ones that committed to a life lived under a rule, 
They took vows of obedience and chastity and stability uh, and uh, in general uh, were sort of the favored group of the clergy for, for historians to, to examine. So um, Episcopus and my interest in the secular clergy in many ways arose out of a, of a recognition that they weren't really getting their due or they weren't getting due attention from historians. Uh, and part of the attraction of the secular clergy for me personally is that these were guys who were out and about. Um, they were balancing both their clerical profession and the demands and burdens of the secular world. And many, many clerks found, themselves in the, found themselves in the employment of, of, of kings or of princes. Uh, they certainly worked in large bureaucracies like that of the Roman church. They traveled. Uh, and they engaged in other kinds of behavior that uh, sort of really humanized them. I always kind of considered the monks, you know, a sort of rarefied breed, even though they certainly had their share of characters as well. So Episcopus began as, a, as an attempt to, by myself and others, to bring secular clergy back to the forefront or at least bring it forward into the discussion among, among academic historians of the medieval church. Uh, and a colleague and I who had met in Kalamazoo at the International Congress, uh, put our heads together and decided that the world needed a society for the study of secular clergy, and Episcopus was born uh, back in the early 2000s. So since then it's grown, it has a couple of hundred members, uh, it uh, convenes panels of papers annually at the big international congresses and at sometimes at other local conferences. Uh, I've stepped away from the leadership position in the organization now, and it's in other hands. And uh, I'm very, very pleased that it has continued to grow and to evolve, uh, and that the interest in the secular clergy continues to grow as well. Uh, as far as the reader that you mentioned, this is in some ways the logical extension of my interest in the secular clergy, because while it's easy to find sources in translation that, um, that focus on monastic life and monastic culture, it's a little harder to find medieval sources that have been translated for non-Latin readers that focus on the secular clergy. And this is a very, as I said, a very diverse group of people. So uh, a colleague and I are currently in the process of translating and providing introductions and um, interpretive apparatus to what will eventually be a, a source reader, a collection of documents in translation focused on the secular clergy and their lives. And our hope in doing so is to bring to, um, to students and to um, non-specialists, to graduate students, and even to colleagues who don't really have a lot of time for the secular clergy in their, their own work, uh, a set of sources that will reveal the richness of this group of people and the many activities in which they were involved. So it's, it's a labor of love. For me personally, uh, I'm very excited at the prospect of being able to share the sources that excite me with students who otherwise wouldn't have access to them because they'd be written in Latin and so not usable in a classroom. And just beyond that, it, it's, uh, you know, it's a sort of intellectual, uh, an intellectual program behind it, which is that if enough people become interested in these sorts of documents, it raises the profile of the secular clergy and may generate greater interest in the secular clergy. So it's a way of doing a reader is, is a classroom tool. Uh, it's, a, it's a tool for non-specialists, but it, 
They can also be tremendously influential in shifting conversations within the field in new directions. Because, you know, where is someone who may someday write about the secular clergy likely to encounter them? Well, it's in an undergraduate class, maybe reading a document in translation. That's kind of cool or weird or unexpected or fun or just mystifying. So um, we're hoping that the reader will stimulate interest as well and, and push uh, this, this intellectual uh, interest of ours uh, further. I am looking forward to the reader as well. I'm not a medieval historian or I'm not studying medieval history, but it is something that is that interests me and I believe readers like that are great resources for people like me who are, like, who are not experts and not really trying to be an expert, but so interested in what people were talking about and to read a, a document that's been translated because I cannot read the, the original language. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really valuable as a professional and as an amateur historian or someone who's just interested in the story in itself. So I see the value in that, and I, I commend you, um, your colleague, for taking the time to do the translations because that in itself is very challenging. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll just add that... Um some of the sources that we're incorporating in this reader come directly out of the research I'm doing for the the Archbishop's Poets and include some of this poetry which has never been translated into English before. And it also includes uh, documents like epitaphs, which were also a form of verse writing that these poets engaged in. Writing epitaphs was a, a learned practice, and one wanted to send one's uh, friends and, and uh, patrons out in style. So writing lofty and somewhat erudite epitaphs was the common uh, way to do that. But uh, we've translated some of these epitaphs. I've translated a couple of the, the poems. And the poetry is really uh, sort of surprising. It's meant to surprise readers who may assume that the clergy <laughs> were all about service at the altar and, and, and pastoral care of souls and that sort of thing, whereas, in fact, uh, poems like uh, the ones I'm translating were often spoken and recited at, at, at courts in the 11th century and actually at other periods as well. Um, so, and Rass in particular was a wonderful uh, center for poetic production even well beyond the 11th century. So the reader, the idea of the reader is to maybe surprise students a little bit with documents that they wouldn't necessarily anticipate would be associated with the clergy. And happily, in my seminar this this year, I've been able to present some of these documents to my students, to test drive them, if you will, <laughs> uh, before the reader goes to press and to get their reaction. And it's been very helpful. I've had a number of very good conversations in, in my seminar with my students, uh, particularly last term, about some of the documents that are going into the reader. So their feedback is feedback that I've been uh, using and incorporating in, in how I think about the, the reader itself. So it's great to have them involved in, in the process as well. Also, as we mentioned before, you're working on a book, The Archbishop's Poet, Scandal and Reform in an 11th Century Church. What's the premise of this study? The Archbishop's Poets is a manuscript in process that I've been working on for a couple of years now. And um, many parts of it have already been written and presented as articles. And it, it, it's an it's a in-depth study of one Episcopal court, uh, the court of the Archbishop of Reims which is a city in the Champagne region of France. It sits in a, in a very beautiful 
area surrounding by rolling hills and champagne cellars. Uh, it was a city with a, a Roman history, uh, and it is probably most famous today for its beautiful Gothic cathedral. Uh, so Reims is a place to go if you like excellent food. It's, a, it's known for its cuisine and for uh, its, uh, its champagne and for its uh, Roman and, and medieval architecture. Um, the court in question was that of a, an archbishop who lived in the later 11th century, who was uh, a somewhat notorious figure in his time. Uh, his, his episcopal career lasted about 11 years, uh, but it ended rather abruptly when he was deposed by the pope and essentially forced into exile by uh, the, uh, his opponents in the city of Reims. And uh, at that point, more or less disappears from the historical record. So he's a figure of some mystery. We don't know what happens to him. We, I, I assume he just died. But, um, but we don't know where he died uh, or where he's buried or even where he went, really, after he was expelled from his city. So uh, this is a story of, a, of an ecclesiastical official of probably the most important diocese in France. It was, a, it was a diocese that was deeply connected to the French monarchy. It was a diocese where French kings intervened regularly to make sure that their favored bishop was put into power there. Uh, and so it was a position of considerable prestige, of considerable power. And this archbishop, whose name was Manassas, uh, flamed out in truly spectacular fashion. And that's one reason that his story is, is interesting. But to me, uh, the, and the untold story that I hope the book will, will bring to light, is that he also very actively cultivated uh, a court culture that celebrated poetry and celebrated secular forms of learning. And he attracted to his court two of the foremost Latin poets of the 11th century. Uh, they stayed at his court for a number of years, uh, including after his downfall, so they, they kept their jobs. But they produced during their time in Reims uh, some poetry which is preserved, and they were celebrated in their day as, as some of the, the foremost Latin stylists of the age. So here we have a, an archbishop, a man of uh, the cloth of the church, who is nevertheless producing uh, or cultivating, patronizing a, a, a Latin uh, literate culture that, for that matter, is, is fairly secular. The poets treated topics that one typically doesn't associate with Episcopal courts. They talked about romantic love. They talked about sex. Uh, they talked about warfare and celebrated warfare. They were uh, deeply, deeply learned classicizers, so they drew upon uh, Roman poetic tradition for their themes, for their characters. Uh, they focused on sort of the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods and their stories and their doings. Uh, they allegorized on these figures. It was a learned uh, literate culture that was uh, secular and classical in its orientation. And this atmosphere is one that one doesn't necessarily 
expect in an Episcopal setting. And yet uh, Manassas uh, was, a, was a keen patron of it. So the, the Archbishop's poets then are these two figures and their works. And the kind of scandal that erupts uh, had to do with uh, the Archbishop's conduct and his relationship with the papacy. And the deposition of Manassas in the year 1080 brought his, his time to an end. And the story I'm telling is about his downfall from power, how this, how this patron of, of poetry met his, met his professional end. Because uh, as one might expect, uh, this court didn't attract just uh, fans, it also attracted critics. And in particular, in Europe at this time, the papacy was in the midst of a ongoing attempt to reform the conduct of its secular clergy and its bishops. And uh, Manassas tended to be resistant to many of the calls to reform that were coming from Rome. Uh, and this, this led ultimately to, to his exile and downfall. Uh, but the story of how his opponents ousted him is also a part of the book as well. So there are a lot of moving parts. There's the story of the bishop, of his page. He was a poet himself, by the way. We don't have any of his poems, but uh, he was praised by one of his own poets as a poet in his own right. And uh, we have this, this man of learning and letters and his glittering court uh, running head on into a more ascetically oriented uh, papally-centered reform movement, and ultimately uh, that brought it all to an end. Well, that sounds amazing. The description of what your book will cover is so interesting, and I think, you know, s stories that students don't expect. Well, you can, tell, you can tell really, really interesting stories by doing deep dives into the documentation produced at a place like Reims, and one facet of the book that I haven't mentioned uh, concerns the the dossier of documents that was compiled by the archbishop's opponents. They they had a program and a project in mind to get rid of him, to get rid of Manassas, and they executed it by compiling a series of texts that were then bound into a codex that still exists in the municipal library in Reims. It was a, a large bound manuscript that was kept in the possession of uh, the provost of the cathedral chapter, so one of the highest officials, secular officials, clerical officials of the chapter. And in this document, uh, the, the archbishop's opponents essentially built their documentary case for why he should go. And uh, the, the book, uh, which I hope I'll be able to bring out in a couple of years, uh, really investigates this manuscript and the production of these texts, which were themselves, uh, to a medievalist like me, very, very interesting, uh, and included things like uh, canon law, church law codes that specifically targeted the abuses the archbishop was accused of. So they assembled their legal sources. Uh, it includes a very, very early, the earliest copy, in fact, of a, of a miracle story that happened of all places in Florence, Italy, and which found its way into northern France, and which involved the exposure and the deposition of a bishop accused of trafficking in church offices. It's a, it's a wonderful story because uh, it involves a number of colorful characters. Uh, and the miracle that is being celebrated in it is uh, 
a miraculous survival of a fire ordeal by a monk who sets out to prove that the Bishop of Florence has come to his office unlawfully. And so to prove it, two enormous fires are lit and he walks between them and emerges unscathed, which uh, was interpreted as divine judgment upon the bishop. He was found, therefore, guilty of the crimes of which he was accused. Uh, and this, uh, this monk uh, was given the surname uh, Fiery. He was called Fiery Peter because he walked through two uh, enormous uh, pyres of, of flaming logs. Uh, and then he went on to become a cardinal, so he came out of it okay as well. But this miracle story, which is set in Florence and has nothing to do with northern France, gets copied into this manuscript and brought from Italy up into France to become part of this dossier against the Archbishop of Reims, who was accused of precisely the same crimes as the Bishop of Florence had been. And there's a third element as well, which I won't, uh, I won't go into, but which is essentially an extended treatise uh, uh, attributed to one of uh, the early fathers of the Catholic Church named Ambrose of Milan, who was a uh, fourth uh, century uh, archbishop of Milan, uh, and it's all about um, uh, the, the sin of simony, which is the sale, the purchase and sale of church offices, and this is the, the crime uh, of which uh, the archbishop had been accused. So we have a, a treatise against simony and how terrible it is. We have a miracle story, and then we have this collection of laws, all very self-consciously brought together by the archbishop, archbishop's opponents, and then used, presumably, <laughs> to make the case that he should go. So there's a, there's a kind of codicological or manuscript-based element to it, and then there are the poets themselves who form part of the story, and then there's the story of the bishop and his rise to power. So it's kind of a, I suppose it's a story a medievalist especially would love, but it's, it's, it's really kind of an engaging and untold story of the 11th century uh, that brings to light the really complicated culture, clerical culture of medieval Europe. Well, talk about trial by fire. <laughs> so do you have anything else that you would like to share with us today? Oh my gosh, uh, about my research or about medieval history in general? or You know, just any closing remarks, anything you'd like to leave us with? Oh boy. Um, yeah, I, I suppose I would uh, just say that, particularly if there are PSU students listening to this broadcast, that I'd love for you to come check out one of my survey courses on medieval Europe. I teach a number of uh, junior level elective classes uh, that cover the history of the Middle Ages. Uh, I think medieval texts can be really fun, unexpectedly funny. Medieval people wrote with a sense of irony and a sense of humor. They loved poetic. They loved divine justice. Um, <laughs> the good guys get theirs and the bad guys get theirs. And even if you've never had any exposure to medieval sources before, they can be really surprising documents for modern readers to encounter for the first time. Well, thank you for coming on the show and sharing yes, the work you. you're doing with us. It's, it's so it's interesting. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
been a pleasure having you on the show. It really has been. been. Thank you. As a final note, I encourage all of you to be open-minded when reading histories or watching historical documentaries or historical fiction. Allow yourself to ask questions and seek answers. You might find that the history you thought you knew is only scratching the surface, the tip of the iceberg, a piece of the puzzle, and any other idiom you wish to insert here. It is a big, wonderful, complicated world out there. It is well worth exploring from local histories to as broad as you desire. Then find the relevance from one piece to the next. Some are more obvious than others, obviously. (laughs) Thank you for joining me today. Beyond Footnotes is produced by students of the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org slash beyondfootnotes and on SoundCloud. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there's a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe, and rate us on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter and Facebook. Signing off, I'm Evan Smiley. I'm Lindsay Smith.